Good evening, everybody. Welcome to uh, November's 501. Why don't we go ahead and begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So thank you all for coming tonight. Before I introduce our speaker today, I just want to let everyone here who's involved with John 15, after we wrap everything up, we ask you just to stay in here for a little bit for a few announcements. So I am actually very, very excited about today's speaker. Um, I first met Father Augustine just a few months ago. We were both at a high school Catholic youth conference in Alabama. And uh, hearing about this Father Augustine who wrote a book on humility plus a novel. And so when I first met him, I thought, it can't be this guy. But then getting to know him over the course, really saw that he was a very good, genuine, and funny priest. And I've said to several people, and I'll say it to today, that I generally have a hard time paying attention to any public speaker. Very, very difficult. So if you're able, A, to get me to pay attention, it's pretty impressive, for more than five minutes, but Father did it for 45 minutes, even more difficult for me is to get me to laugh. Very, very rarely am I going to laugh at something. But not only did Father make me laugh, I laughed so hard I actually cried. So that's when I said, I need tears of joy, not of pain and suffering. Um, <laughs> I, I said, Father, come down. We have a gumbo cook-off, hang out with some priests, speak to the students. And he graciously said yes. So we've enjoyed uh, having him so far. I want to welcome Father Augustine Weta. Thank you, Father. Um, as you were talking, well, okay, no, I'm just going to jump right in uh, with some apologies. Uh, Vonnegut, Kurt, I once heard Kurt Vonnegut speak, and he said a great orator should never start with an apology. Uh, but I, I, I hate Vonnegut. So, <laughs> firstly, an apology for the ridiculous haircut. I just had brain surgery. So if you've ever wondered what spray-on hair looks like, come up after the talk and I'll show you exactly where they uh, shaved my head. Number two, uh, they did that because I spent 18 years playing rugby, which is way too long to play rugby. And I got hit in the head so many times, I have tremors in my right side. So if I do like this... You're not in trouble, and I'm not, you don't have to wave back, it's just me. Um, also, uh, if, if you have questions, I'm, maybe periodically I'll stop and say, any questions, and just jump right in. Otherwise, I'll go sit in the cafe all night and talk. Once you get a monk out of his monastery, you can't, can't get him to stop. Um, so yeah, I am an, uh, an authority now on humility. I wrote the book literally wrote the book on humility. And uh, the, the way that happened was I work at, different monasteries have to support themselves. Our first job is to pray. Monks are men who pray, and that's our vocation. But we have to support ourselves, because otherwise you just end up with a house full of freeloaders. And my monastery runs a high school, a prep school. 
and we had this wonderful, shr um, not shrink, counselor named, of all things, Dr. Fury. Um, and, and he was just fantastic. He gave a talk to the parents entitled, uh, Don't Let the Village Raise Your Child, which I just thought was brilliant. And every morning I would walk in, I'd say, hello, Doc, how am I? And he'd say, you look fine, very healthy, psychologically grounded. And I'd say, thanks. And he'd say, how am I? And I'd be like, I think you're a terrible sinner and things like that. And then as we left, he'd say, you know, you're perfect just the way you are. And I'd say, uh, be true to yourself. And he'd say, follow your dreams. And we'd go back and forth every day with these cliches, these empty, horrible cliches that we tell kids uh, that turn them into narcissists and, and failures. Um, and, and then I, was, I went to, uh, I was picking up some drugs, legal drugs, for the old monks of the monastery at a pharmacy. Uh, and you know how they have these cards and little books on the shelf next to these sort of little uh, cartoony books. And one of them was The Teen's Guide to Self-Esteem, Learning to Love the Most Important Person in the World. And I looked at it. <laughs> I looked at it and I was like, this is, I got, by the time I got up to the front of the line, I was like, this is the worst advice you could ever give a kid. Like, they already think they're the center of the world, and now you've just piled on the pressure. And I went on and on. Finally, they gave me the book, and, and I went home and I basically wrote my own book on self-esteem. Spoiler alert, I don't believe in self-esteem. Um, and I can't imagine, for example, John the Baptist highly esteeming himself, like looking at himself in the mirror and saying, you know, you're beautiful, people like you, you know. Um, it's humility, and, and real humility is accurate self-perception. So, on the other hand, if you really are beautiful, there's no sin in saying, you know, I am beautiful. Uh, because it does God no credit if you play down your strengths. Um, I haven't actually yet begun to give my talk, but I'm going to keep going. Um, <laughs> Uh, when I, I was on the swim team in high school, and there was this kid who every year at regionals beat me, and at the end of the race, every year at regionals, he would get mad and throw his goggles across the room. And I, I remember looking at him thinking, well, you, you beat me. Like, you know, what are you so upset about? Like, you're great, you know. Uh, it does God no, no justice to downplay your gifts. So if you're really good at something, it's okay to say you are. And, and I'm humble. So that's that. Um, well, at any rate, I've written the book on humility, so. Um, the, the rule, well, yeah, the, the rule of St. Benedict, at the heart of the rule, is the spirituality of the monk, which involves, of course, prayer and listening, and hence silence. For the record, there are no monks in the world who take a vow of silence. That's a myth. Otherwise, like, if the place burned down, the monks would run around going, Right, and, and they'd all die. Um, but, uh, and then in the same chapter, chapter 7, uh, St. Benedict gives a, a little mini Cliff's, Cliff Notes guide to humility. He says it's a ladder, and the higher you climb, the lower you go. And it, it builds in intensity. It starts with the fear of God, right, with these sort of negative virtues. I'm sorry, I just ate a whole bowl of crawfish atufi and uh, so if I belch and hold my stomach periodically you'll know why um, I have Cajun blood but apparently not 
the Constitution for it. Um, so it starts with the fear of God, and it proceeds to self-denial, obedience, perseverance, repentance. Then it starts to build up again with serenity, self-abasement, prudence, silence, dignity, discretion, and finally reverence. And I'm just going to go with step three, um, which is uh, obedience. And th this, that's, which is why I entitled the talk, Don't Follow Your Dreams. Um, St. Benedict writes, because of course, it, well, no. St. Benedict writes, for love of God, be obedient to your elders, imitating the Lord of whom the apostle says he was obedient even unto death. Right? I think, I think Americans in particular are, are pretty down on obedience. We want to go at ourselves, you know, I did it my way, you know, and at, what, three failed marriages and two addicts addictions later, you know, you got to wonder whether Sinatra really did a great job of that. Um, no, no offense, well, he's not here, he's dead, so who cares? Um, I mean, he's either laughing at me now or he's wishing he had read my book. Um, <laughs> You see, this, yeah, this is where, when I go off script, anything can happen. Please, yeah, ignore me when that happens. Um, which is difficult when I'm the only one speaking into a microphone. Um, right, but, but, but the counter to this, uh, go, you, did you know, by the way, North America has the highest number of psychopaths per capita in the world, right? And I think that's, there's a reason for that, that we, we put such a stress on individualism and on, uh, on doing, doing things your way uh, at the expense of obedience. And in the Catholic Church, really obedience is the glue that holds us together. And uh, these expressions like follow your dreams are fine unless you have a stupid dream or a, an evil dream, right? I'm not going to tell Jeffrey Dahmer to follow his dreams, right? Um, and you can't do, you, people say, you can do, you're perfect just the way you are, you know, you can do anything so long as you put your mind to it, okay? I'm never going to be a brain surgeon, all right? And if you see me coming towards you, <laughs> you run for the hills, okay? My abbot, my abbot is crippled from the waist down. He had polio when he was three. He's a Rhodes Scholar, top of his class at Harvard, uh, got his PhD from Oxford. He's the most able man I know, but he is never going to be a track athlete, okay? Uh, he's never going to walk, and that's just, if you tell people to follow their dreams, no matter what, it can end up a disaster. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, uh, we don't need a church that is right when we're already right, okay? We need a church that is right when we are wrong. And, and it seems to me that... Uh, Lately, there's been this sort of shopping around for a church that fits what I already believe, and I, I just don't think that's the way to go. Um, August, uh, a famous Benedictine monk by the name of Auguste de Latte, he's French, not Cajun, but just French, um, referred to this as, uh, to, in particular to Mary, as uh, her, her primary virtue was, he said, supernatural docility. Right? Being docile in the presence of God. Because, of course, with God in the room, there, there's no individuality. There's no, there, there's no do it your own way. Um, I, I was actually teaching a group. Uh, I had this football team uh, that, well, I was teaching a confirmation retreat. 
and I was teaching them how to pray, and we were meditating, and I wasn't really getting through to them. It was an entire football team from, uh, let's see, Eolia, Missouri, a big, chunky guys, corn-fed, you know, country boys, and they were, they were basically decent, but they were also together, and that meant they weren't really listening. So I just decided to make the whole retreat about silence, uh, because that means they don't have to talk very much. And, uh, and the interesting thing was they really got into it, and we started doing 10 minutes of silence, 20 minutes of silence. At the end of the retreat, we did 45 minutes of silence, and I look around the room, and they're all like, re- like <laughs> one of them's even flexing. He's like, <laughs> and, and then I realized, like, I hadn't actually trained them, right? Silence can be really dangerous if you don't put Jesus at the center of it, first of all. Otherwise, it's just quietism, which is a heresy, and it's just emptiness, and anything can creep in. Uh, And then I didn't teach them the Jesus prayer, and I didn't teach them this and that. And 45 minutes passed, and I hadn't started praying, right? And they all came back in a group, and I was like, and they were like, this is awesome, man. I'm going to be silent all the time now. And I I finally said, look, I got to break, I got to be honest with you. Uh, The whole time you were silently praying... I was thinking of all the stuff I forgot to say, right? And, and this big lineman in the back of the room raises his hand. And he goes, Father? I was like, yeah. He says, how do you know that wasn't God telling you what you forgot to say? I was like, oh! Like, finally he speaks back. And I'm like, shh, I'm trying to pray, right? Um, so, so when it comes to prayer, there's a certain obedience there as well. Listening not only to um, what you want to hear, not only, not just sort of perfecting a technique, but being open even to the distractions that creep into your prayer. Um, but it's the monk's of primary vocation to, to cultivate this listening in the context of, of, of prayer and obedience to God within the cloister. And my, my first experience of this was during my novitiate, really, my, uh, in, in St. Louis we have these, these horrible well, no, terrible but wonderful storms that blow through. They call them gully washers. And, uh, and, and just lightning and rain and hail the size of, like, footballs. And, and, and uh, during one of these storms, all the lights went out in the monastery. And it lasted three hours. When they came back on, it turned out one of our old monks was in the elevator the whole time, stuck. And so they called the novices together, and we pried open the doors. We pulled him out. We pulled our novice master out of the, out of the uh, elevator, and he was beaming, like you know. And we're sweating and frustrated. And I literally said to him, and I probably shouldn't have, "What's your problem?" Right? And he looked at me. He goes, "Problem? I just spent three hours in an elevator." As though that explained it. And I knew I was in no mood to challenge him, so I, I found him later, Father Luke, and I said, what do you mean? That, that you, you said that as though it were a good thing. And he said, yeah. He says, I have given up everything to be a monk, to spend my life in silent contemplative prayer, and I fill it daily with all these errands and things to do and thoughts. And he's like, here I was. The lights were out. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't see anything. It was, it was like... It was the best three hours like, of the last decade. And, and I thought to myself at that time, like, that's power, right? Like, that is something I want, right? If the most frustrating part of your week becomes the greatest moment of the last 10 years, like, 
there's just no losing in a situation like that. I had this roommate in, in college, he's still a really good friend, a self-described bitter ex-Catholic, uh, or recovering Catholic, as they say. Um, and, and I like to point out to him, there's no such thing as an ex-Catholic. Once you're baptized, that's it, you're in. Uh, it's indelible mark on the soul. But anyway, he says, uh, the problem with you Catholics is that when you're happy, you're happy. But when you're miserable, then you're really happy, right? Which is actually kind of true, right? The cross has the effect of turning human logic on its head, right? It's the meek and the humble that inherit the earth. Um, but, but, but there's no listening. There's no docility. There's, a, there's None of this is possible if you can't be silent. And, and this is something that, that I really... Um, I think we need in this country and in our church more than ever. Uh, and, and the cell phone, more than anything, I think has, has destroyed our silence. I mean, even if, even if your cell phone, is, even if you're not talking on it, using it, if it's there, studies show psychologically that it's as though another person were in the room with you, right? You always know it's there. So I, I recommend maybe start with 60 seconds or 30 seconds. Um, but, but turning off your cell phone when you pray, and maybe even putting it in another room, right? Uh, my, when, I was during the, when I was a novice, I, took, uh, I, I translated the rule of St. Benedict from Latin with Father Timothy of our monastery. And Father Timothy is a great man with a capital G. He, he, Horner is his last name. And his great, 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 great grandfather was little Jack Horner, who sat in the corner with his thumbs in the pie. Like, he comes from British nobility. Um, and, and he was special forces during World War II. And, and he's six foot three. Well, actually, he's dead now. But he was six foot three, and he had red hair. Uh, well, I'll talk about death in a second. Um, because monks are big on death, but we'll, we'll get to that. Anyway, every day, uh, we, we would meet at a certain time. And every day, I would be late as I am late still to almost everything. My, my brethren refer to me as the late Father Augustine. And every day I would show up for my novitiate with papers flying and an excuse, and, and Father Timothy would be sitting at the table like this. And he'd have his papers laid out and the rule open and a pen, and he'd say, and I'd say, I'm really sorry, Father. I was, I was working in the garden, and then it showed up, and then there was a dog, and a bird, and I threw up, and whatever. And he'd wait till I was finished. He'd wait a couple of seconds, and he'd say, are we quite ready? I'd say, yes, Father. And we'd begin. Uh, and this happened every day. And, and what, what my brethren don't realize is that every time I'm late, I hate it. I, I, I say to myself, no, I, I want to change. I really do. Um, but in any case, it happened toward the end of my novitiate that I was actually on time. I was starting to get to be on time for this class. And one day, Father Timothy was late, right? So I took all my books and I laid them. I actually sat in his chair. And I laid out all the books and my pen, and I sat waiting for him. And he walked into the room. He's like, I'm so sorry, I'm late. And I was sitting in his chair, and he looked at me, and he sat down. I said, are we quite ready? 
And he looked at me, he took a little piece of paper out of his, ch out of his pocket, and he pushed it across the table to me. When I opened it, it said, silence is the first language of God. Uh, and until, pretty, until I lost it, that little piece of paper sat on my nightstand next to my bed. Uh, and if there's nothing else you take from this talk, like, put, keep that somewhere in the back of your head. Silence is the first language of God. You know, I mean, when we, when I, I mean, I remember before I became a monk, and this was even before iPods um, or, or even phones, I would, I would wake up to my clock radio and make breakfast listening to the radio and then eat breakfast watching TV and maybe go for a run with my Walkman and my earphones uh, and then get in the car with the radio, get a, go, go to work, talk all day, get it back from work, make dinner, watch The Simpsons while I ate, go to bed with you listening to the radio. I even had a radio in the shower, right? So I, I could go weeks with no silence. And, and what a tragedy if silence is the first language of God. Right? Because, of course, before there was creation, before any of this, the Trinity were perfectly communicating without language, right, in silence. Um, but that, that's only one part of obedience. St. Benedict refers to both obedience to your elders and mutual obedience, which, which I've had a lot of trouble figuring out over the years. When, when, I, uh, when my sister got married... She asked me to give the, the talk at her wedding, the, no, the toast at her wedding. Uh, and I did what I always do when I have nothing to say. I went and found an old monk. In this case, it was Father Patrick, and he was in the Califactory, which is monkish for living room. And um, he was asleep in a chair. And I walked in and I said, Father Patrick, and he was an old English dude. All my monastery was founded by English monks, so they're all English. I won't try to imitate their accent. But anyway, he woke up and he said, yes. And I said, Father Patrick, I need to give the toast at my sister's wedding. Give me something wise to say. Right? And he said, ah, you tell her, he said, that the day will come when she will want the window open. And he will want the window closed. And then he went back to sleep. <laughs> and, and I had no idea what that meant. But I gave the toast. I said, someday you will want the winner. And everybody laughed. And it, I was a big hit. And, I, I had, and everybody thought I was really wise. And I, it wasn't until a couple of like, years ago that I realized what he meant. I say mass for the missionaries of charity. And they, they are just the greatest. They all talk like this. They're all like this big. And even the Americans, they end up talking like this. They say, Father, would you come and say mass for our poor? And I say, yeah, sure, say, sister. Or I say, no, I'm very busy. And they say, at 8 a.m.? And I say, well, I'm, you know, all day, for 30 minutes? Okay, fine, I'm coming. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I gave this sermon. I didn't have anything else to say. So I said, someday one of you will want the window open and the other will want the window closed. And they all sort of nodded as they do. And after, uh, after Mass, um, Sister Donald, I didn't even know there was a Saint Donald, but anyway, they, give, they have these crazy names. Donald Mark is her name. Anyway, apparently there's a Saint Donald somewhere, uh, not running our country, I assume. And no, 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 uh, no, I didn't mean to go there. Anyway, the, um, uh, you know, well, yeah, say what you like. Anyway, um, yeah, she came up to me and she said, 
you know, I won't try to imitate her accent either. She said, uh, when I was a, a young nun, uh, I was assigned to a convent in the Amazon. And all six of us lived in the same metal hut. And every night we would go to bed and we had to sleep in two rows of three cots each. No, three cots. And, uh, <laughs> and um, she said every night, there was one nun there from the area and every night she would come in and shut all the windows. She said and every night we would sit in our beds steaming and resenting that sister. Uh, and she said for, for months, we, none of us slept because it was so hot in this hut. And finally, she said, uh, this, this nun was transferred. And they all breathed a sigh of relief. And they opened all the windows. And they slept all night with this beautiful cross breeze. And in the morning, they woke up with snakes in their beds. Right? And she said, what, your abbot, what, what Father Patrick meant was that, you ha that, that mutual obedience means that you trust that the people around you want what's good for you, right? You assume, to begin with, that the people around you are charitable, right? And that's, that's very hard to do. In psychological terms, I, I just recently learned this, they call this, um, uh, I can't remember what they call it. Darn it, I was going to sound so smart. The... Um, it's on the toe. Well, I'll get back to it. Um, well, I'll just describe it for you. It'll come to me in a second. Um, the point is that when you judge other people's actions, you judge them by their character. You say, that guy's a jerk. But when you do something jerky, it's because of the circumstances. The fundamental attribution error. Yes. Uh, it's called the fundamental attribution error. And the, the, the way it works is, or, or another way to explain it is, when you go out on the highway, everybody who passes you is a maniac, right? Everybody you pass is an idiot, right? So how is it that you alone chose the exact right speed to drive, right? Because you're judging all the other people by a different criterion. If somebody cuts in line in front of you, it's because he's a jerk. But if you cut in line, it's because... You're in a rush, and it's been a horrible day, and you didn't see the people behind you, right? So to be, to, just to make logical sense of the world, you need to apply the same criterion to other people that you do to yourself. You say, you must, well, in this, uh, I, I went, I, was, I walked into the library not too long ago, and the novices were in there, and they were chattering. And, and I guess I, I don't know why, but I said, shut up. And they looked at me, and the one of the novices said, you must be having a very bad day. <laughs> of course, then I felt terrible, uh, which is the whole point of everything. And he, uh, because he was judging me by the circumstances, right? I was judging him by his character. Um, and, and the way to, the, the trick St. Benedict gives to, to, to keep with the fundamental, I have not been timing myself, so how are we doing? Oh my, has it already been 30 minutes? Darn it. Okay, well, I told you I would talk, I would talk about death, and so I'll close with that. Uh, but, man, there's so much more I want to tell you about, like the rose bush and the iron that Father Rafe left in the, in the apologies. And, and you can talk. I will sit in that coffee shop till 4 in the morning and talk to anybody who wants to. So.
We can continue this later. Um, I'll close with death then. See, monks wear black, uh, says St. John Cash, and, and so do priests for that matter, diocesan priests, because it reminds us of the day of our death, right? And, and that's, that's what keeps you from, uh, well, there are two reasons for this. Number one is, um, as Father Luke says, you got to have something to look forward to, right? Uh, in fact, I walked by his room not too long ago. I said, hello, Father Luke, how are you? He said, waiting to die. <laughs> I said, are you okay? He said, yep, got to have something to look forward to. Um, but the other reason is because it kind of puts relationships in perspective. I mean, really, statistically speaking, one of you within the next five years here is going to be dead, right? By some sort of terrible accident. Uh, yeah, sorry to kill the mood there, but it's. But this is worth considering because there are all sorts of small things that suddenly become big things in our little lives. Uh, and, and, and so, and I'll just tell you this story, and this will be the very end of my talk, I promise. Um, we every monastery has uh, a crazy monk. Uh, I mean, every monastery is a microcosm of the church. So there are some smart monks and some dumb monks and some fat monks and some skinny monks and lazy monks and hardworking monks. And every, every monastery, every community I've visited uh, has one really nutty monk or nutty member. Uh, and in our case, it was Brother Ed Dahlheimer. And by crazy, I mean he had invisible animals in his room that talked to him. Uh, <laughs> He was also, I think, what they call obsessive-compulsive. Everything had to be exactly right in his choir stall. Everything was perpendicular. The books were... He would spend about 20 minutes before each of the uh, divine office arranging things so they were perfectly straight. Uh, he'd come into dinner, and he would spend time arranging the forks. Um, he was also a genius, by the way. At the age of 85, he taught himself the harmonica and committed 800 songs to memory. He didn't know how to read music, so he invented his own musical mo notation based on colors. We, if, you, if you ever visit and you're all invited, um, I'll show you these books. Nobody knows how to read them. They're just colors, and they're all bluegrass songs. Um, and he was an authority on Ernest Hemingway. He, he actually owned an autographed first edition of The Sun Also Rises, which I once asked if I could see. And, and he said something about cold day in hell, that kind of thing. Um, because if truth be told, Brother Ed and I did not have harmoniously blending personalities. Um, yeah, in fact, and, and to make matters worse, we sat next to each other in choir, um, and, and I would come in late, and he'd have everything perfect, and he'd have to move, and, and I may, you know, once or twice, I may have rearranged his books as he would have it. Um, so... We were, we were not best friends. And, and when you have a fight in a monastery, it has to be a very quiet fight because, you know, we don't talk a lot. Uh, a really gentle, quiet fight, um, also known as passive aggression. And, um, and then, on top of all this, for eight years we sat next to each other in choir. And then the abbot made me the kitchen master and made Brother Ed the dishwasher. So we were forced together, um, and it was just terrible. Um, and to make matters worse, even worse, I keep saying that, like things just kept getting worse. And uh, I, I would just sort of forget to feed the monks and things like that. 
and as a thank you to the monastery, and these guys, man, please come visit my monastery because they are beautiful, wise, generous men who allow someone like me to live with them. Uh, God bless every one of them. I, I get choked up thinking about them. Um, but uh, as a thank you to them, I made this feast on the la my last day as kitchen master because eventually the abbot decided that was not my vocation and I needed to go off and study. And um, the crowning achievement of which was this chocolate almond tort that my mother taught me how to make. And I, I made two chocolate almond torts so there'd be enough for me to have the next morning for breakfast. Um, which I did. I cleaned up after the dinner and I, I cut myself a piece of chocolate almond tort and I wrapped it in silver foil and I hid it in the refrigerator behind the mayonnaise because nobody touches the mayonnaise in a monastery. Um, and, and the next morning I woke up extra early and I got my chair out on the back porch and my favorite book and my cup of coffee and I, I took my chocolate tort out of the fridge and, but when I opened it when I unwrapped the silver foil, someone had been there first, right? Someone had taken my chocolate tort, found it, and then taken a bite out of it, and then wrapped it up exactly as I had left it <laughs> and put it back in the fridge exactly behind the chip. Right, there was only one man <laughs> capable of this magnitude of insensitivity like and and the the depths of rage that cried out to god for vengeance you know but i i i i i, I swallowed my rage and i went back and i cut myself a second piece of chocolate tort and i wrapped it in silver foil put it back behind the the mayonnaise but first i soaked it in super hot Cajun sauce, right? And, and the next morning when I woke up and I went down to the kitchen, there was chocolate tort sprayed across the refrigerator. And it was like, it was the greatest moment of my life probably. I mean, vengeance was, was, was truly mine. Um, and the whole day, you know, again, you have to be very quiet in a monastery. So I, I would just sort of, if I'd see Brother Ed, I'd be like, you know, is it um, which was fine. Uh, I went off to do my uh, studies, but while I was gone, uh, Brother Ed got very sick. Had nothing to do with the chocolate tort. Uh, he got colon cancer, and by the time I returned from my studies, he was dead. Right, and and when I got to my room, you know, it, it, the place was a little more empty without Brother Ed. Uh, and when I got to my room, I, I opened the door, and this is the part I, I can't tell without getting a little choked up. There was a little brown package on my desk in my room, neatly taped with scotch tape and tied with twine. And when I untied it and opened the package, it was Brother Ed's copy of The Sun Also Rises. And it had a little sticky note on it that said, sorry, right? And, and I remember thinking, you know, I could have been a little nicer to Brother Ed, right? Uh, I mean, he was an old man and crazy, right? I could have made him his own chocolate tort, right? Sorry. And, uh, and th this is why it is so essential 
not only the silence, not only the obedience, but to keep that moment of death always before your eyes. Uh, because these little things that become so huge with our friends and our family really are, are just tiny things when, when considered in the light of, of the eternal, right? Um, well, I, I'm out of time. I'm sorry to say I could, I could talk all night, and I will if you want me to later after this is over. Um, but uh, let, let, let us pray then. Uh, well, let's just end this. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, dear God, uh, help us to be saints. Help us to be the great saints that you are calling us to be. Give us wisdom and patience. Give us silence and give us an awareness of our mortality and the light of your grace and the infinite joy that awaits us in the hereafter. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, blessed Jesus Takayama Yukon, pray for us. If you want to know who he is, I'll tell you afterwards. He's a samurai and he's a saint. It's really cool. And I've got holy cards that I made myself that I'll give you if you want one. <laughs>